You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. An inscription on a small, polished gray monument in Elmira, New York, reads, Between July 1864 and August 1865, 2,973 Confederate soldiers were buried here with kindness and respect by John W. Jones a runaway slave. They have remained in these hallowed grounds of Woodlawn National Cemetery by family choice because of the honorable way in which they were laid to rest by a caring man. I first noticed this monument over 10 years ago on a trip to Elmira taken while I was in graduate school. The monument is located in a national cemetery, not far from a Confederate soldier monument and an island of some 3,000 Confederate tombstones surrounded by the dead of other American wars. Among those 3,000 Confederates was my great-great-great-grandfather, a Southerner who had fought and died for a cause that enshrined white supremacy in its founding documents. But I didn't learn about that until years later. On my first trip to the cemetery, With no knowledge of my familial connection to the place, I was struck by geographical and ideological discordance. How did these soldiers from Georgia and Mississippi and North Carolina, my home state, end up in a sleepy, some might even say forgotten, northern town like Elmira? Who was John W. Jones, and what was he doing burying these men, men like my great-great-great-grandfather, who would have him enslaved? The story of John W. Jones is remarkable in many ways, as we'll just begin to unpack in this episode. I should say now that to tell Jones's story, I will quote from materials that contain dated and racist language. While my grad school group's main reason to visit Elmira was to learn about Mark Twain's connection to the town, it was Jones whose story I couldn't forget. Who was this caring man? The more I learned about him, The more I continued to learn about him, the more I learned about the 19th century and, unexpectedly, my own past. If you've listened to the earlier episode of the C-19 podcast on Mark Twain and Elmira, then you already have intimate insight into what Elmira was like in the 19th century and how Jones contributed to that radical landscape, both figuratively and literally. I'd like to build upon Matt Sabold's work in that episode to allow Jones to step out of the shadow of figures like Mark Twain and Thomas K. Beecher. I'd like to use this episode to ask what happens when our scholarship and our family histories collide, and to think about what the stories that surround John W. Jones can tell those of us living through 2020, a year of plague and pestilence and violence and hope. But before we get to 2020, we have to start this story in 1817, the year that John W. Jones was born into slavery on a plantation just south of Leesburg, Virginia. Jones's life changed forever in 1844, when he, his two half-brothers, and two other enslaved men emancipated themselves by walking from Virginia to Elmira, 
a journey of over 300 miles. Jones quickly found work in Elmira and became determined to gain an education for himself. So he arrived in Elmira. He was 27 years old, couldn't read or write. First thing he wanted was an education. Could not get entrance to uh, the two schools here. Worked for someone who was so impressed with him as the person, his work ethic and so on, that his wife, the employer's wife, um, allowed him to come to school for one season. That's Talima Aaron, president of the Board of Trustees for the John W. Jones Museum in Elmira. Aaron is one of the stewards of Jones's legacy in the 21st century, and in telling the story of Jones's life, she emphasizes that he was a man of action, who did things not just in word, but in deed. He just seemed to have this huge capacity and generous spirit and a commitment to his beliefs that was visible and active. You know, he, you know, when they say walk the talk, he, he was this man. In 1847, within three years of self-emancipation, Jones was appointed sexton of the First Baptist Church, and by 1854, he was able to pay $500 for a yellow house next to the church. At the same time that Jones became more and more central to Elmira's civic life, he also became a conductor on the Underground Railroad, where Elmira was an important stopping point. Through his friendship with Jervis Langdon, Mark Twain's future father-in-law, and other prominent white abolitionists, as well as his association with William Still, the Philadelphia-based father of the Underground Railroad, Jones ferried some 800 enslaved people from the South through Elmira to Canada and freedom. I think his story in history rivals that of Harriet Tubman. I mean, of course, no one can beat a Black woman who went back 17 times to bring family and friends to freedom. But John Jones impacted the lives of 800 men, women, and children none of whom, as far as they know, were ever captured. When I asked Talima Aaron and Rachel Dworkin, archivists for the Chemung County Historical Society, about the most telling moments from Jones's life, the stories that speak most truthfully to his character, they both brought up a really fascinating story about Jones from around this time period, the 1850s, a story that demonstrates that Jones was not opposed to using violence to make a point, when he saw people threatening the cause of abolition. Here's Rachel describing the circumstances that raised Jones's ire. Uh, a, a con artist was walking around downtown Elmira claiming to be a fugitive slave and asking people for money to help him get to freedom. And because this was an abolitionist stronghold, he was getting money. And Jones discovered that he was, in fact, a freeborn black from upstate. And he was so mad that this man was scamming people of goodwill and sullying the, the reputation and name of the Underground Railroad that he just punched him in the middle of the street and made him give back the money. Talima read me the original story of this moment of, frankly, bad assery, as told in the local newspaper. A black rascal came to our village a few days ago representing himself to be a fugitive slave and collected about $5 from the sympathizing. But before he left, he was recognized by a colored man who had seen him at Buffalo a few weeks since. Finding that he was detected in his composure imposture, 
he made tracks, but was overtaken by John Jones and kicked very severely. Said such fellows will do great injury to actual fugitives by creating in the minds of the directors of the Underground Railroad strong suspicions that they are not what they represent themselves to be. We can't know how much bodily damage was done by Jones's kick or punch of the fake fugitive, but the implications of the newspaper report are clear. The work of the Underground Railroad was so important to Jones that he would not stand for it to be threatened, even if it meant using violence. This version of activism contrasts the peacekeeping, forgiving vision of Jones that would come to dominate later narratives of his life, but it provides a sense of him as a real man, a man who felt anger and hated injustice at his core. Remarkably, at the same time that Jones emerged as a major figure on the Underground Railroad, he also not only held down, but excelled at his day job as caretaker of the Second Street Cemetery. He excelled so much that in 1859, he became caretaker of the new Woodlawn Cemetery. Within a few short years, civil war consumed the country. The same railroads that made Elmira rich, and that made it an ideal stopping point on the Underground Railroad, also meant Elmira was the chosen location for a prisoner of war camp for Confederate soldiers. The camp was referred to as Hellmira, or the Andersonville of the North, and 3,000 Confederates died there in the single year that the camp was in operation. The person in charge of burying those Confederates was a black man whose supposed racial inferiority was used to justify secession and raising arms against the United States, John W. Jones. The monument to Jones sits near another much larger monument, featuring a relief statue of a soldier erected in 1937 by the Daughters of the Confederacy. Both monuments are situated within the Confederate section of the cemetery, which as I've described forms an island within the Greater National Cemetery. It's a thorny, temporally layered memorial landscape to interpret, and I should confess here my own misinterpretation of that landscape. When I first encountered the memorial to Jones and the Confederate memorial nearby, I assumed from looks alone that they were both the works of the Daughters of the Confederacy. I interpreted the memorial's emphasis on Jones's status as a, quote, runaway slave and, quote, a caring man as a parable of black forgiveness of white sins. I was completely wrong. In fact, the monument to Jones was put up in 1997 by a group of students and administrators from the nearby Southside High School, around the time that local activist Lucy Brown began raising money to save Jones's house and start the Jones Museum. With this information, I can now read the Jones Monument as a counter-argument to the Confederate Monument, an assertion of Jones's persistence, his skill, his work, in the face of the most dehumanizing of circumstances. I've always been struck by the words of the monument, calling Jones a caring man. It's to this notion of care, as exemplified by the objects of our study, but also in our work as scholars of the 19th century, that I'd now like to turn. I haven't been able to get the 1997 monument to Jones and the story of his life out of my head since I learned about it, perhaps for reasons only my subconscious can speak to. I wondered then, as I wonder now, did Jones care, truly care, about the Southern men he buried? The evidence used to attest to his care is that 
Jones kept precise records of each man who died. His, quote, name, rank, company, regiment, grave number, and date of death, according to a historian. Rachel told me more. He buried them with a thoroughness and compassion that was unheard of at most northern prison camps where they were just dumping people in mass graves without any record of who was going where. And instead, he, you know, wrote their names down, wrote their name, regiment, date of death down on a slip of paper, put that in a jar, put that jar in the person's clothing, buried them all in individual coffins, had headstones made for them with their name and regiment. And so he was just incredibly detailed and incredibly thorough. And his records were used by the United States government when Woodlawn National became Woodlawn National Cemetery in order to put permanent headstones on the graves using his records. Talima Aaron describes Jones's actions during the Civil War in this way. I mean, that attention to detail and caring speaks volumes about who he was as a man. He cared so much about the fact that he looked at these as young men, some of them boys, that were far away from home, dying in an unknown place. That part of his heart went to that because of how wonderfully he laid their bodies out, you know, how the the actual graves were aligned and cared for. After the war, I believe everybody left their bodies there except for two. There's also the story when Mr. Jones recognized one of the soldiers that he was burying was the son of his overseer from the plantation where he was enslaved. He actually wrote them to one confirm that they did have a son and what his name was and was he fighting. And then he let them know where they where his body was, where their son's body was. And they were able to come and, and have him shipped back to be reburied in Virginia. At a time when anonymous bodies littered battlefields and campsites, one can imagine the comfort given to families left behind, knowing exactly where their loved ones rested even if those loved ones were Confederates. Jones received $2.50 from the government for every body he buried, making him, according to the historian Clayton Wood Holmes, an Almira native who knew Jones in his later years, quote, the wealthiest colored man in this part of the state, end quote. Rachel notes that Jones actually renegotiated this rate from essentially a flat fee to get paid per body buried. I love that it was Jones's record-keeping that gained him his reputation as an honorable man, and that he became very wealthy from his excellence at both keeping records and demanding pay equal to his own worth. It was the education that was denied to him by his enslavers that in the end made him rich. And this wasn't the only way that John W. Jones used inventiveness, brilliance, frankly, to make a comfortable life for himself and his family. They used to give money to whoever could ring the alarm first in the event of a fire. And he rigged up a a system so that he could ring the bell at the church where he was the sexton from his bed if there was a fire so that he could sound the alarm first. 
And it was Jones's remarkable capacity to transform injustice into action that continues to resonate with us today. Derek R. Spires, in his authoritative and inspiring book, The Practice of Citizenship, Black Politics and Print Culture in the Early United States, says this, quote, As state policies and public discourse around citizenship were becoming more racially restrictive, Black activists articulated an expansive, practice-based theory of citizenship, not as a common identity as such, but rather a set of common practices, political participation, mutual aid, critique and revolution, and the myriad daily interactions between people living in the same spaces, both physical and virtual. They reject definitions of citizen based on who a person is in favor of definitions grounded in the active engagement in the process of creating and maintaining collectivity. Citizenship, in other words, is not a thing determined by who one is, but rather by what one does. Spires's definition of 19th century Black citizenship is John W. Jones personified. In burying the Confederate soldiers, Jones participated in one state-sanctioned form of citizenship. In excelling at that form of civic participation, and in his lifetime of participation in Black vernacular forms of citizenship, like the UGR and the church and the YMCA, John W. Jones modeled an active practice of collectivity and community. If we think about it in this way, Jones's care becomes action. Here's Rachel again. He became one of the wealthiest African-Americans in upstate New York thanks to the deal that he worked out with the federal government for the burial of those Confederate dead. And he bought himself a farm and he, he, was, he just was a go-getter. He was also an activist for racial and economic justice. And he was um, a founder of the Colored Citizens of Elmira, which was a group that was aimed at providing aid and also political activism for the, the city's African-American community. After years of thinking about Jones and Elmira in my own work on Civil War literature and space, the question of care came home to me. I will always remember the date. It was July the 4th, ironically enough, and I discovered during an idle Ancestry.com search that my own great-great-great-grandfather, James Stewart, was among the Confederate soldiers buried with care and dignity by Jones. Suddenly, my scholarly interest in Civil War memorialization, in strange and unsettling geographies generated by the war in places like Amira, became personal. I had always known vaguely, growing up white in the South, that there were family ties to the Confederacy. I remember in particular one family reunion, horrifying in retrospect, when a distant relative came dressed in full Confederate regalia. But if I knew I had an ancestor buried at Elmira, it was a fact I'd buried deep in my subconscious. I tried to learn what I could about this ancestor. He volunteered for the Confederate Army, aged 35, in February 1863, leaving a young family at home in North Carolina. He was captured by Union troops on June 18, 1864, during the bloody Battle of Petersburg, and was sent north to various prison camps, arriving at Elmira the next month. By October 5th of that same year, he was dead of pneumonia, and was buried by Jones and the men who worked for him at Woodlawn. A few other details emerge from what little I find. James Stewart signs by Mark. According to census records, he owned no slaves. 
Despite this, I presume, based on the work of historians like Joseph Glathar, who have investigated the motivations for poor white Southern men to fight for the Confederacy, that he still felt an abiding racial superiority and deep racist sentiments that justified his enlistment. More recently, in her book Masterless Men, the historian Carrie Lee Merritt has added nuance to discussions of class consciousness among poor white Southerners, describing how slave owners stoked fear by predicting race wars if emancipation were to occur. Merritt emphasizes that while rich and poor white Southerners had differing views on slavery, there was, quote, certainly near universal consensus among Southern whites regarding racism, end quote. Should I care that this 35-year-old man left behind his wife and small children to fight in a war justified by racism? It all seems so stupid, so infuriating. The same month that my ancestor died of pneumonia in remote Elmira, October 1864, John W. Jones's biographer tells us that he, Jones, lost a child, a toddler. Yet still he continued to bury bodies, including the body of James Stewart. When I gave a paper on the Jones Monument and my Confederate ancestor at the MMLA Civil War Caucus last year, another serendipitous moment occurred. Mary Wheeling, Associate Professor of English at Goldie Beacom College, was giving a paper on her own ancestor, William Rufus Barlow, who was also a Confederate POW, also from North Carolina, who died at Elmira and was buried by John W. Jones. While I learned about my Confederate ancestor later in life, Mary grew up hearing tales about her family's Confederate ties. I can't remember how young I was when I heard my second great-grandfather, William Rufus Barlow, died at Elmira and was buried there. So, so that's a story I heard from my grandmother and my dad and his sisters. So I had always heard, yes, he died at Elmira. He was a prisoner of war. He fought for the Confederacy. He was captured uh, in Spotsylvania and sent to Elmira and never came back. And so the story was, you know, that's how my great-grandfather grew up fatherless. Mary's family had something that mine didn't. Letters. A whole series of them written from William Rufus Barlow, home to his wife at their farm in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina. When I started getting interested in family history, which was when I was in grad school at UNC, that has a great Southern historical collection where I could find pre-internet all of my relatives, I started looking into my relatives more. And then as the years went on, my sister, who has also been very involved in family history, started to look into the letters that Barlow had written home. I got interested in the letters uh, academically. And I thought as I started to investigate them, you know, just in the last 10 years, well, I'll have to learn a little more about this, Elmira. Mary's investigations into Barlow's letters led her to read several histories of the POW camp at Elmira, which mentioned John W. Jones as the man in charge of burying the Confederate dead. She decided to visit Elmira, to see her ancestor's grave and to see what little remains of the POW camp, while also attempting to learn more about Jones. When I finally visited Elmira, it, it was very important for me 
to find out more about John W. Jones. And then once you get there and once you find out all of the um, the depth of Jones' involvement in not just the prisoner war camp, but the community itself, it's just mind-blowing. The visit to the cemetery to see Barlow's grave among, you know, the 2,700 other ones from the Confederate dead, imbuing that whole thing was was knowing Jones was responsible for this. And that monument that you read the plaque on about Jones' work before you even step in to the area where the Confederate stones are all lined up. You must get past that monument to get into the next area uh, commemorating Jones' work. You know, it was mind-blowing. And then to be able to visit the John W. Jones house and um, speak with uh, Talima Aaron and just learn the depth of his involvement and commitment to the freedom of Black Americans overall, not to mention his own community of Elmira and then the the dead that he was tasked with caring for. It was learning about Jones that that really, really, really made the trip. Since her trip to Elmira, Mary has been working to properly archive and theorize her ancestors' letters, to think about them not just as family relics and not just as historical documents, but as texts for interpretation. I think the letters captured so many people's imaginations, so many of my cousins' imaginations. And because he didn't come back to be a figure in the family into old age, the mystery, you know, the mystique about who who was he, we never got to get to know him. You know, my grandmother never got to know her grandfather. And they the urge to recreate from the letters, which is actually, you know, a, a main motivator in my own scholarship. There's to recreate these relatives that I never knew. So finally, there was this chance with the letters to connect uh, literary theory, you know, um, epistolary theory, and Southern culture, Appalachian studies. Everything seemed to come together with these letters. Mary didn't know that in the course of learning more about her own family's past, she would also learn the incredible story of John W. Jones. As a teacher, Mary is committed to bringing the story of Jones into her college classroom. Absolutely. So I live in Delaware, uh, in Wilmington, and uh, Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad is a very important piece of our local history. So when I learned the name of John W. Jones, I learned of his contribution to abolition, escape from enslavement, empowerment of Black communities. I thought, why didn't I already know his name? Why do people not know this man? And so I can bring that into my classrooms where most of the students I teach are from this region, you know, so they're already familiar with some local history. But then um, I can bring in, you know, when we talk about the 19th century, I can bring in John W. Jones and say, we need to learn more 
about what was happening at this time. Another thing is just my understanding from my own experience that one way students become eager about learning, you know, and develop curiosity, their intellectual curiosity is through exploring their own identity. So when I can say, look, this is what I do as a researcher. This is what I do as a scholar and a teacher. You can do it too. Mary Wheeling has turned her family's Confederate past into a research agenda and a pedagogical practice. How should I show my own care as a white academic working on and teaching about 19th century America, and particularly the Civil War era? How should I show my care as a U.S. academic working internationally, teaching about the United States from afar? I'm still figuring this out within my own pedagogy and research, but here are a few thoughts. First, I've taught a class on monuments in American culture that seeks to understand the monumental impulse, to teach students to read monuments and know them as the historical, ideological, and aesthetic texts that they are. While the class spanned monuments from Bunker Hill to the 9-11 memorial, we spent particular time thinking about how race is inscribed in the very materials of all monuments. Looking at pictures of DC's Emancipation Memorial, which famously shows Abraham Lincoln standing over a cowering enslaved man, alongside a discussion of Frederick Douglass's fiery dedication speech with its trenchant critiques of Lincoln, allows students to see how monuments and the archives they create are sites of cultural and societal contest. Douglass unsurprisingly says it better in a recently rediscovered letter published in the National Republican. He writes, admirable as is the monument by Mr. Ball in Lincoln Park, it does not, as it seems to me, tell the whole truth, and perhaps no one monument could be made to tell the whole truth of any subject which it might be designed to illuminate. He goes on to say of the statue, the Negro here, though rising, is still on his knees and nude. What I want to see before I die is a monument representing the Negro not couchant on his knees like a four-footed animal, but erect on his feet like a man. So we can teach these debates, and we can provide context and nuance in the space of the classroom. To this end, I'm working with Kristen Treen at the University of St. Andrews to create a database of Civil War monuments with context and scholarly interpretation. The monument that I initially misread, but that, as Mary says, is required reading before encountering the Confederates still buried in Elmira, will of course be included among them. But there's so much more for me to do. When I teach Twain now, I also teach Jones, whom Twain interviewed late in his life about his experiences on the Underground Railroad. They're buried in the same cemetery, Woodlawn, that Jones was caretaker for. Surely the life of John W. Jones has plenty to tell us about the books and stories that Twain penned on his hillside looking over Elmira. When I think about how to care as a scholar, I've drawn the most inspiration from the people of Elmira, people like Talima Aaron and Lucy Brown, who erected a monument to counter the looming statue of a Confederate and to tell Jones's story. Local activists who have worked for the past 25 years to get the house that Jones bought turned into first a historic site and then a museum, and soon, hopefully, a museum with an interpretive center. I see the museum and the interpretation center we're going to build. I see these as living entities, not a formidable 
it's the museum, it's a building. I see it being used actively, that we have programs regularly, that we have, uh, we're accessible to the public for a variety of things, um, learning activities, fun activities, social activities, business activities. I see them knowing the history so well because it's theirs. So I, I just see it as, as the biggest thing possible for Elmira. Surely our best example of how to care comes from Jones himself. He took names. He looked to his local community to find space to create change. He imagined and then forged a life for himself outside of what my great-great-great-grandfather and the other 3,000 men he buried would have allowed him. A final way I think we can show care as scholars is to search for John W. Jones in the archive, to recover his voice and allow him to speak for himself. What's slightly infuriating about trying to recover Jones's motivations is that so many people, so many white people, and I now include myself among them, insist on telling his story for him. Yet there are places in the archive where he emerges. One is in the book where he recorded his burials for Second Street Cemetery, the Book of the Dead, now held in the Chemung County Museum. Here's Rachel Dworkin. The coolest piece is something that he not only touched, but actively wrote in, and that is his Book of the Dead. When he was caretaker for Second Street Cemetery, he kept meticulous records about who he buried, where he buried, how old they were, when they died, etc., etc., and we have that. And that's the only thing that we have that we can definitely tie back to him that was his, that he owned, that he touched, but it's cool. The Book of the Dead is a remarkable record of Jones's skill and diligence, but it leaves other facets of his personality out. There's one other place in the archive where Jones's presence comes through, a document that for me encapsulates his life in all its vibrancy. It's found in William Still's book, Still's Underground Railroad Records, published in 1886, where we get, at last, Jones's undiluted voice. Still transcribes a letter written to him from Jones on June 6, 1860. The letter reads, Friend William Still, all six came safe to this place. The two men came last night, about 12 o'clock. The man and woman stopped at the depot and went east on the next train, about 18 miles, and did not get back till tonight, so that the two men went this morning, and the four went this evening. He then inserts a quotation from a spiritual, sung to the tune of the popular minstrel song, O Susanna. O old master, don't cry for me, for I am going to Canada, where colored men are free. The letter concludes with the postscript to still, by turns kindly and defiant. What is the news in the city? Will you tell me how many you have sent over to Canada? I would like to know. They all send their love to you. I have nothing new to tell you. We are all in good health. I see there is a law passed in Maryland, not to set any slaves free. They had better get the consent of the Underground Railroad before they pass such a thing. Good night from your friend. This is the version of Jones that I attempt to carry with me. He is wry and aware and funny and compassionate. 
He acknowledges the law and then acknowledges the superiority of black inventiveness and resistance. In this letter, John W. Jones models a version of care that contains a spirit which I can only hope to model in my own Civil War scholarship and the personal histories with which it's necessarily tangled. Since beginning work on this episode, a lot has happened in the world. I had originally hoped to travel to Elmira and record interviews there, to revisit Jones's house and the National Cemetery and the site of the prison, to search for the first time for my great-great-great-grandfather's grave. But COVID-19 meant that the trip to Elmira was canceled, and I'm now left thinking about Jones from an ocean away. Perhaps it's little wonder that embedded in our modern word care is its now obsolete Germanic root, meaning grief, sorrow. Then, as I was recording interviews for this episode, the murder by police of George Floyd set off a wave of anti-racist protests globally. I couldn't help but think what John W. Jones would make of America in 2020, of Black Lives Matter, of calls to defund the police and end white supremacy, of the destruction and removal of Confederate statues across the South, including the first Confederate monument in North Carolina, which was removed from a cemetery in Fayetteville, the closest city to where my Confederate ancestor grew up. I asked Talima Aaron what she thought Jones's life could tell those of us living through the pain and upheaval of 2020. That oppression and inequality will inevitably lead to a fight for freedom and justice. That you cannot be silent when you see injustices committed. That one person acting on what is right can make a difference. And that in order to make change, you must take action. And you must be willing to make personal sacrifices. And you need support from the majority, allies that are willing to stand and fight with you. John Jones' legacy is his life of service to others, his unwavering belief in equal rights for all, and his unrelenting fight for social justice. He would absolutely be a local leader in the current protests. He would organize citizen groups and participate in marches and demonstrations. He would use his considerable powers of persuasion to um, assemble and gather other support and resources. I guess the ultimate lesson is that we must stand up for each other and fight injustice, even if it means going against current convention and breaking the law in order to establish the correct legislation. From Jones's example, from the way he conducted his life as a model of engaged citizenship, we see that creating real and lasting change is not the work of a day, but of a lifetime spent educating, strategizing, hustling, agitating. That's why, even as the coronavirus has wreaked havoc on museum attendance and budgets worldwide, and as Confederate statues have been toppled across the country, Talima wants to put a statue up, a statue of John W. Jones that shows his care. But not necessarily on a pedestal, because that's not who John Jones was. So I want something, whether he's kneeling in the garden or... He has um, something in his hand because he was a man of action. He was a worker. And standing on a pedestal is not the embodiment of his character, his spirit to me. He would be helping someone, doing something, always on the move. So, yeah, we'll have to see. We'll have to see how much this costs. But like I said, I'm like, I'm for, let's just do it right. And, you know, go all in. 
My thanks for this episode go to Talima Aaron, Rachel Dworkin, Mary Wheeling, Pat and Stuart McFadden, Melissa Nyadick, and the kind commenters who heard an early version of this paper at the Civil War Caucus. If you'd like to learn more about the John W. Jones Museum and support their amazing work, including the drive to build the new Lucy Brown Interpretive Center and to create a statue of Jones, visit johnwjonesmuseum.org. You can also donate to the fantastic Chemung County Historical Society at chemungvalleymuseum.org. The music you heard this episode was an arrangement of O Susanna by the United States Navy Band, the minstrel song whose melody was used for the UGR song, Song of the Free, quoted by Jones in his letter. My thanks also go to Rachel Baccio, who produced this episode, and Doug Guerra, along with the whole C-19 podcast team. If you'd like to learn more about John W. Jones or access resources for teaching about his life, please check out my website, jspivycadell.com. Thank you for listening to the C-19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.